As is the norm. Uh, so the first topic is about children who have been uh, struggling with uh, speech therapy um, during the pandemic. And we shall start that slightly earlier today because we've got a lot of guests um, and a packed show. So um, we shall start at about 7.25. And the second segment, which we shall start at about uh, 10 past 8, is about the Israeli-Gaza war. And we will be talking about how divided uh, a world has that particular conflict created. So those are the two topics of the morning. As I mentioned, this is the live show, so please do call in at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Aslam alaikum, a very warm welcome, gentlemen. Aslam alaikum, and peace be on you. And you. Aslam alaikum. Thank you, Daniel. Um, thank How you are you, gentlemen, doing? How was the how was the weekend? Any, any highlight... Uh, uh, activity of yours from the weekend? Oh, um, two trips to the Heathrow Airport. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Yes, that, uh, that would have taken uh, some, some part of your weekend, definitely. Uh, right. Okay, so let me um, crack on with the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. So, um, I lied, but it's not a crime. Headlines the Metro as it covers Michelle Moan's sit-down interview on the BBC Sunday with Laura Koonsberg program. Baroness Moan told the BBC she stands to benefit from tens of millions of pounds generated through the sale of Personal Protective Equipment, or PPE, to the UK government during the pandemic by a company led by her husband, Doug Barrowman. Uh, the... Uh, Doug Barrowman, the couple apologised for denying their role in the deal for more than three years, but said it was not a crime to lie to the press. The Eye also picks up on the BBC's interview with Michelle Vaughan. It highlights uh, uh, Baroness Moan's claims she's been made a scapegoat to cover up government's failings, a point denied by Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden, who also appeared on Sunday with Laura Koonsberg. Elsewhere, LGBTQ Saudis criticised footballer Jordan Henderson over his transfer to another club. An image of Michelle Moon during her interview takes uh, center stage of The Guardian as well. The paper quotes Shadow Health Secretary West West Streeting in response saying, Our message to those people who sought to use the pandemic to get rich quick is we want our money back. The Guardian also reports on game-changing drug that prevents menopausal hot flushes, which could benefit hundreds of thousands of women. The Daily Telegraph opts for an image of Israeli troops exploring what the IDF claims are Hamas tunnels near the Erez crossing in the Gaza Strip as its standout picture. The broadsheet leads on former Defence Secretary Ben Wallace warning that Israel risks losing legal authority for its war in Gaza by going on an indiscriminate killing rage against Palestinians. Mr. Wallace, who left his position in August, said the tactics will fuel the conflict for another 50 years and radicalize young Muslims. A woman with a boyish pixie haircut winning the Miss France beauty pageant sparkling, uh, sparking the allegations of vokery also makes the Telegraph's front page. 
The Times leads with the obesity-linked hospital ward admissions doubling to more than 3,000 people a day. And Defence Secretary Grant Shapp says UK will destroy the business model small boat gangs, the Daily Express reports. Meanwhile, Michelle Moon does a Prince Andrew in car cash interview. Car crash interview is the express take on a sit down with Laura Kunzberg. And finally, the Financial Times leads with the International Monetary Fund warning UK's economy is in peril if allies do not speed up extra funding. In an interview with the broadsheet, head of the IMF said, amid haggling slowdown US and EU cash, Ukraine's economic revival could be in danger. At the top of Financial Times is an image of families of Israeli hostages staging protests demanding Benjamin Netanyahu re-enters talks for their release in some of the most significant domestic demonstrations since the war began. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics. So the first topic, which we shall start in about 20 minutes' time, is about um, the children who actually um, struggle to get speech therapy during the pandemic and are still uh, still struggling as a result of that. And the second segment is about the war in um, the Middle East at the moment, and we will be talking about how divided is the world as a result of those um, uh, of that conflict. Please do stay tuned. We will be back right after this short break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. This morning we shall be talking about children who struggled uh, during the pandemic and didn't get enough speech therapy. And then we shall also talk about uh, Israeli Gaza war and how the world has been divided as a result of that conflict. Uh, for the next 10 minutes or so, we're still talking about uh, the um, news, um, important uh, news items appearing in the newspapers this morning. Uh, Imam Usman Manan, anything that caught your eye this morning? Um, yes, recently there has been uh, <clears throat> there has been some uproar about, uh, uh, you know, refugees and uh, immigrants uh, with the Rwanda plan as well. But there is also one aspect of this um, kind of um, uh, um, side of the you know politics that uh, a lot of people are also very really really fuming about but it does not affect many people because uh, it's to do with uh, uh, calling your family or um, um, uh, on, on, on visas um, to this country and uh, if you know that uh, there used to be a minimum uh, annual income you need to have to be able to support your family members which you are which you are uh, calling to to the UK, and that used to be eighteen thousand pounds, but uh, recently that has been all changed to um, almost thirty eight thousand pounds, uh, north of thirty eight thousand pounds, and um, um, the multinational families threatened with division or exile by tough new income thresholds for living together in the UK are um, they are planning to take legal action against this plan. Um, Thousands of families uh, with one British partner and one born abroad will be hit by the government's announcement that from next spring, only people earning 
£8,700 will be allowed to bring family members to join them, up from £18,600. Uh, many may be forced either to leave separately or to leave Britain to be together. Um, and also, if if you do have to sponsor one of your family members, um, it's not a one-time um this annual income is not a one-time thing sometimes you need to um, re reinstate that visa you need to get another visa every couple of years and every year you need to be able to uh, uphold this figure um, to show that you are constantly earning this much now um, the I mean the shocking thing is that this is almost uh, twice more than 50% actually the increase uh, of the sum and uh, people were already uh, struggling with this because uh, sponsoring one of your family members was already very expensive. Uh, there are so many other hidden fees in there. Uh, uh, your lawyer fees, there is uh, other, there's visa fees. And this is uh, all separate from this um, £38,000, which you need to be constantly having um, your annual income. And uh, hundreds of people whose, whose lives could be turned upside down by the new rules have contacted uh, newspapers news agencies and warned that they will have to leave the uk if they want to stay with their foreign partners many work in sectors with um, severe work worker shortages uh, such as care and social work um, one care worker who is 50 years old uh, said that the rule was ruining our plans for a happy future and academic 35 who said that uh, these new rules terrify me a marketing manager said separating families is an atrocity and so on. Uh, there's many people which are not happy about this. Uh, an administrator at the University of Cambridge said she and her partner from Morocco were being kept apart by the existing salary threshold and were experiencing age-related fertility problems, meaning this whole system has basically cost us the chance to have our own family. Um, grounds for a legal challenge could include the government's handling of impact assessments of the rule change questioning how the new £38,700 income minimum has been reached or whether the change interferes with the right to family life under the 70-year-old European Convention of Human Rights which the UK helped draft and remains bound by. So yeah so this is um, from uh, these changes will be happening I think from next year um, unless some uh, somebody steps up and uh, you know brings a change to this, uh, but for many, I think this this thirty eight thousand is, is a huge salary. Yeah, it's a significant um, jump. Yes. And I also um I think I read somewhere or heard that, uh, that there might be exemptions for key workers, hmm. uh, such as the NHS or uh, GPs, doctors, healthcare workers. Um, there might be some kind of uh, you know leave way for them, hmm. uh, but you can see from from their stance that they are trying to. Uh, kind of limit the people which are not you can say um, contributing to the society mm. so they want to keep the key workers the, the, the you know the important positions the important jobs for them they will obviously um, uh, be be more lenient but I don't think this is fair on, on other people who might not be key workers as such but they still do have an honest living they work hard every day mm. uh, I mean I don't think you would count uh, radio um, radio presenters as uh, key workers maybe mm. but uh, mm. still we have a job as well and uh, there's uh, other people there is um, cab drivers there are uh, um, uh, business owners themselves uh, mm. self-employed people so um, this is a very 
high threshold, a very high sum. Uh, but let's see what happens. And Thank you for that, uh, Imam Swaminan. Um, in other news, uh, Guardian talks about hopes for another ceasefire and hostage release um, that were raised at the weekend when a source said that Israel's spy chief had spoken on Friday with the Prime Minister of Qatar, which has previously mediated hostage releases in return for a week-long ceasefire and the freeing of Palestinian prisoners. Reuters reports that two security sources from Egypt, another mediator, said on Sunday that Israel and Hamas were both open to a renewed ceasefire and hostage release, through, uh, though disagreements remained on how it would actually be implemented. We're open to any efforts aimed at ending the Israeli aggression. This, according to Hamas official Sami Abu Zori, say, um, who said that when uh, who said that this is the ground for any discussion. In a further positive sign, the Karim Shalom crossing between Israel and Gaza opened for eight trucks on Sunday for the first time since the outbreak of the war, according to officials, and a move to double the amount of food and medicine reaching Palestinians in Gaza. But Israeli authorities said that they were determined to fight on to eliminate Hamas, which has run Gaza since 2006. The U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who traveled to Kuwait on Sunday to offer condolences on the death of Kuwait's Amir, Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmad al-Sabah, is expected in Israel later for meetings with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, in Khan Yunus, in southern Gaza, residents reported hearing Israeli planes and tanks bombing and shelling and the, and the sound of rocket-propelled grenades apparently fired by Hamas. The Israeli military said it had killed seven militants in an airstrike in Khan Yunus and found rocket manufacturing parts and three tunnel shafts near a school used as a shelter, according to Reuters. An Israeli tank shell hit the maternity building inside Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, killing a 13-year-old baby girl, a 13-year-old girl named Dina Abu Mehsen, according to spokesman of the Hamas-run um, health ministry. He said Abu Mohsen uh, or Abu Mehsen had previously lost a father, mother, two of her siblings and one of her legs during the shelling of a house in Al-Amal neighboring, a neighborhood in Khan Yunus a few weeks ago. About 19,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to Hamas-run Gaza health um, authorities. Um, this was obviously in response to the attack that Hamas uh, carried out on October 7th, killing about 1,200 people in Israel. Um, There's also another another, um, new threat. It's not new, but it's been going on for a while in Gaza as well, which is the spread of disease. Yeah. And um, I mean, uh, with all the bombing, with all the shortages of uh, uh, health um, equipment, um, the the doctors are saying that it's it's impossible to treat um, some cases, uh, some certain diseases. And you need certain medicine um well you can maybe you know stitch up a wound with, with something else but there are uh, genuine medicine which you can't replace yeah and, they, they've uh, been doing amputations without anesthesia yes that's, i mean i don't know how people still say stay conscious um mm. really painful as well yeah and and uh, so many other things as well and it's it's yeah it's 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 very painful at the moment what yeah, is the, um, the who has uh, reported that between 29th November and 10th December, about 10, 11 days, the case of diarrhea in children under five years has jumped up 70%, um, around 60,000 people. Yeah. And just in, just in 
I mean, less than two weeks. So I was reading somewhere that um, uh, people have now uh, resorted to um, bathing in the sea and uh, and children have been forced to drink seawater because there is no other water um, to drink. There's nothing else there. And um, mm. the problem also is exacerbates because there is um, in, in Rafa border crossing or around Rafa border crossing, there are about a million refugees at the moment. And there are there is one toilet for 500 people. And mm. because there is no sewage extraction mechanism, a lot of that is ending up in the in this on the seashore. So people are actually use pretty much bathing with the same water and drinking the same water as well. And therefore, disease is also spreading the diarrhea that you spoke about. Yeah. I mean, seawater, just even if it's not, uh, you know, dirty seawater, drinking seawater. I read this many years ago that if you are thirsty, you're stranded at sea somewhere, it's better for you to, you know, die of thirst than drink seawater because the the amount of salt you will take Mm. in, you're going to need more water to counter that. Mm. And you're going to basically drink yourself to death. Yeah. So they are stuck either way. Yeah, it's a a pretty sad uh, situation, right? Okay, so that uh, concludes our segment on um, the news items appearing uh, in the newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics. So the first topic, which we shall start um, in exactly two minutes' time, is about uh, speech therapy and is about actually the children who struggled with speech therapy during the pandemic. And uh, we will be speaking to a few guests in that segment. And uh, from about uh, 10 past eight, we will be talking about the Israeli-Gaza war. And we will be talking about how uh, divided a world that particular conflict has created. A very quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about the children struggling to get speech therapy during the pandemic. Um, this is a live show. Please do call in at 0208687 You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We'll be back right after this quick break. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice, Voice of Islam. We're about we are about to delve into the first topic, which is about children who struggle to get speech therapy during the pandemic. Dr. Shakil, uh, uh, can you take our listeners through what we will be talking about? In this segment, we'll be discussing the issues 
about babies and toddlers have faced during the pandemic, especially those who needed extra support with language and speech. This segment's based on the recent BBC articles stating stories of children who struggled with speech therapy during the pandemic period. The first story is of a girl whose mother was unable to get help through the NHS. And during the COVID lockdown, her parents tried to find help. It was very difficult for them to access NHS speech therapy services. The only appointment that was available was over the phone. And uh, they did not speak to the daughter. They just spoke to the mother who was told to try out some games. And that was the last contact she had with them before she started school, which was last year. Without help, the child tended to get frustrated because she could not make herself understood and then started to have extreme tantrums in the classroom. After some further research, the mother heard about a speech and language unit at the University of Reading where therapies provided for free, but there are observing student trainees. When the daughter, this young girl, first arrived at the University of Reading, all of her sounds started with a Y sound. So if she was counting, the young girl would say, instead of one, she would say yon, two would be you, and so on. But with the help of the therapist, she's started to make good progress now. So this article, this BBC article, also states that around 65,000 children in England are on the NHS waiting list for language and speech therapy. Um, so in other words, not enough uh, clinical resource available for the need of the children, particularly in the developing age. Data from health visitor checks in England for 2022-23 shows nearly 15% of children aged 24 to 30 months were below the expected level in the communication skills, which, according to the article, is a rise of 11% uh, from 2018 figures. At the age of five, children with speech and language difficulties are six times less likely to achieve expected targets in English and 11 times less likely to achieve targets in maths by the time they reach the end of the primary school. And the article also mentioned that eight out of 10 children with emotional and behavior disorders have speech language communication needs that have not previously been identified. The frustration for some children with speech problem is very difficult, particularly from their parents' perspective. Uh, Ali Biddle, a director of speech and language at the University of Reading, says, we're getting families phoning up in tears, saying we are desperate. Please, can you see our child? So from this example, uh, it is evident that many of us are unaware of the implications speech and language difficulties can have on children and the people around them. Absolutely. Um, uh, <clears throat> so in terms of uh, what to look out for, what sort of signs to look out for, um, there is um, there's actually a list of not smiling or interacting with others, uh, making only a few sounds or gestures, um, not understanding what others are saying, saying only a few words, not e easily understanding words, not putting together sentences, 
struggling to pay and uh, struggling to play and talk with other children and having trouble with early reading and writing skills mm-hmm. as well this obviously is um is age dependent some of them um uh, yeah. should I mean they are very obvious but obviously the point is that uh some some children start talking very young and some children might take some time but <clears throat> the first i think uh, the first year or two this is where <clears throat> children should be able to start making sounds like i think uh, the the most common ones uh, a baby starts with is probably mama mm-hmm. uh, the m the m sounds usually you know mm, and uh, they can't pronounce the, the k's or the t's if you if you want to put it this way sure but uh, yeah so if they are struggling with the especially in the first one or two years um that's something uh, you should be looking out for let's talk uh, to uh, an expert in this area so we now have uh, dr samber uh, who is a qualified speech and language therapist on the line she's worked with nhs uh, with children with speech language and communication needs for nearly a decade she currently works in research with the bristol speech and language therapy research unit assalamu alaikum peace be with you a very warm welcome to the breakfast show Good morning. Thank you. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. Uh, good morning, Dr. Bird. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, nice and early uh, Monday morning. Uh, lovely to have you. <laughs> thank you. Good right. to be here. Uh, so, so tell us about uh, uh, maybe let's start off uh, we're talking about some specific challenges that babies and toddlers face during pandemic, uh, especially those with uh, speech therapy issues. Yes, this is a, a very significant time for everybody, but particularly for as you say for babies and toddlers. And one of the key challenges that uh, that they faced was that actually all of the normal settings and environments where where children of all ages would usually meet and interact with other people were of course closed during the pandemic due to lockdown. So the baby groups, the stay and play sessions, nursery schools, and even simply opportunities just to go out into the community and come into contact with other people perhaps at libraries at coffee shops in the supermarket you know even just passing each other on the street all of these really important opportunities to expose children to kind of natural conversations and interactions um stopped and um, what what we know is for example research from the education endowment foundation highlighted that because of the lack of these opportunities to meet and interact with other children and adults in these different environments that actually children's ability to learn and develop new vocabulary for example new words and language was significantly reduced um and research shows that the more language babies hear in the first two years of life the more words and the bigger their vocabulary they have when they start school and we know that this is really important to help them learn and to do well and that was a significant impact of the pandemic um and this effect is now being seen in schools as these babies and children of the pandemic start their education and what we also see is that of course when these opportunities for social interactions in the community stopped so did those opportunities for children who were having difficulties with their language of communication to be identified by people who could otherwise signpost parents and families to the support that they would need to access to help these children um and these delays in identifying children with speech and language needs have contributed to the significant increase in demand for speech and language therapy support that we're now seeing today and there are there are many reports and research studies looking at the impact of lockdown and the pandemic on children's speech and language development. Um in January 2022, the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists published a very impactful report on the the impact of COVID-19 on speech and language therapy services in the UK. 
And one of the things we did see is that early in the pandemic, the NHS underwent a phenomenal change in its practice pretty much overnight. Um, and when it changed from delivering speech and language therapy as a face-to-face -face service, uh, it changed to providing mainly virtual appointments via teletherapy. Um, I was working clinically in the NHS at this time, and the change really was revolutionary for services. But of course, it has its limitations. Natural communication is much harder in a virtual setting than in face-to-face -face interactions. And so the virtual environment as well could limit the effectiveness of assessment and interventions for these children at that time with communication difficulties. And so that was that's another impact of, of the pandemic that children and, and young people have unfortunately um, felt. So is it not that the children also lip-read their parents and therefore a telephone therapy would not be as effective? Yes, yeah, so that's a really interesting point. So yeah, lip reading and watching like sort of the, the mouth movements and even just the facial expressions during communication is really important. Right. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes the delay between the video and the audio, for example, in a virtual call um, can have an impact there. But one of the really important impacts from the pandemic and very, very simply was, was mask wearing. So one thing that we have seen is that babies are very curious creatures and they love to watch faces when people are talking and they watch the, how the mouth moves, they watch the facial expression, they watch the body language. But what we found is that actually the impact of mask wearing takes away all of that, exactly as you say, that lip movement and those mouth shapes, and but the facial expression that comes with it. And so there are masks for a real, obviously an important barrier, but a very a physical barrier to babies and young children being able to develop their communication through seeing that language and that speech happening physically in front of them. It's a really important point, yeah. That, that's right, and I'm, I'm glad you've added on the facial expression things too. I mean, we all adore our little babies smiling back <laughs> at us when we smile at them, isn't it? The telephone can't do that. Um, no, exactly. Dr. Burr, moving on to the next question. Um, can you elaborate on the importance of early speech and language development and how it then goes on to impact a child's overall communication skills as the child grows? Yes, yeah, so language is hugely important for social and emotional development as well as communication development. Um, children and you know babies growing through to toddlers, young children, they need to be able to express how they feel and as they get older to talk about their emotions and to be able to do this they need to know and learn the words and the language for doing that and what we see is that children with poorer language skills often have behavioral difficulties which can be linked to frustration but about not being able to say what they feel and that early language development and communication development is so important we know that 75 percent of brain development happens in the first two years of life so that's a really important time for these children to be hearing lots of language and the brain develops by making connections about between what it sees and what it hears. And so more the, the more young children hear um, and experience through people talking to them and interacting with them, the stronger those connections get. And the more they um, sort of hear parents and, and families talking about everyday objects and activities, um, the more they learn those words, the stronger those connections get and the stronger their language skills will be. And we know that children who start language, uh, start school, sorry, with less language and smaller vocabularies mm -hmm. do less well in their education. So there can be long-term effects on learning. Um, and research shows that at a child's language at age five when they start school is the single most important factor in predicting their literacy skills at age 11. 
Um, so that's an indicator of just how important that early interaction, those early speech and language development opportunities really are for developing children's communication skills. Thank you, Dr. Burr. Um, uh, you also work in the in the um, therapy and research unit at the mm. Bristol University, and you've been probably uh, obviously conducting some uh, research there. Have you? Uh, what have you been? Um, what have you found? You know, in your recently um, in that research um, about uh, speech therapy and the speech delay in children. <laughs> well, we're a very busy team, and yes, as you say, I'm very privileged to work with the Bristol Speech and Language Therapy Research Unit, and we are very unique because we're actually based at a NHS site um, with uh, at Southmead Hospital in Bristol, and we do have many connections with Cardiff Metropolitan University and the University of Bristol, the University of the West of England. So we have fantastic opportunities to work with researchers and communication specialists around the UK, but also across the world on a variety of research projects, um, including research into children's speech, language, and communication. And really one of the most consistent findings that we have is that of this huge importance of language and communication and interaction for the healthy development of babies and young children, um, and this obviously, of course, includes talking in the language or languages that are used kind of naturally in the family and in the community. Um, also aspects around the importance of um, talking to babies. As you say, we love our babies. We love looking at our babies' faces. Mm. And the way we talk to babies to so that slower pace, making eye contact, more emphasis, more facial expression, as we've said, um, getting babies' attention, all of those early interactive skills are so important. Um, and also the importance of children being able to hear different types of language, so whether it's sisters and brothers talking together, grown-ups talking to each other, grandparents talking to younger children, all those different styles of language are really, really important mm -hmm. to add all those different dimensions to that communication development early on. And yeah. so those are all critical things that we are, um, we are exploring. And considering your background in the NHS, what kind of support mm. and interventions are available for children facing these speech and language challenges, particularly during these unusual times? Yes, it certainly is a, a challenging time at the moment, but it is really important to say that despite the, the pressures that are on the NHS services at, from all aspects, not just from the children's side of things, um, it's really important that parents understand that the NHS and also non-NHS speech and language therapy services are there to offer advice and assessment and therapy for children with speech language and communication difficulties. Um, and there are many ways to access this support. So you can access um, support through community groups. So that might be baby groups, that might be stay and play sessions, drop-ins, library sessions, um, that healthcare providers can also um, provide support and access to these services. So health visitors, for example, that families might be interacting with or their GPs. And of course, also through um, the nurseries and preschools that children might be attending and also the school settings. And children who have uh, speech and language and communication needs receive support in a number of different ways from these services. So it might be that they're given activities to do with the family at home um, or in preschool or in school with teaching staff. Sometimes they might be invited to come into a clinic setting with a speech and language therapist and some of that therapy might be provided in one-to-one -one with a therapist or it might be a small group activity um, and sometimes as well these therapy interventions can still be provided online because actually one of the things we've learned from the the way the services have changed through the pandemic is actually some children 
absolutely love and do really well by uh, doing their therapy virtually. They really engage better with it than they may have otherwise done, perhaps in face-to-face. So there are some benefits and some positive learning from the uh, pandemic as well, which is great to see. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Burr, for your time this morning at the Voice of Islam breakfast show. It's been very useful to have this discussion with you and uh, your enlightenment. So thank you very much once again. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a privilege. Thank you very much. Take care. Right, so that was uh, Dr. Burr uh, talking to us about um, a whole host of things about um, uh, around the uh, the problem of speech therapy. Let me now uh, go straight to our second guest for this morning, uh, who is Ms. Asma Khanum. She has specialized in early years bilingual and SA, bilingualism and SEMH, which stands for social, emotional and mental health. She's one of the original founders of Chatterberg Speech and Language Therapy Service. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome. welcome to The Breakfast Show. Uh, welcome, Slam. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, ex- excellent to have you on the show. Let's start with the, maybe the Chatterberg um, uh, Speech Therapy um, uh, Service. Can you tell us a little more about that? Um, yeah, sure. So I have been working as a speech and language therapist for, oh, maybe, maybe over, to, over 20 years. Um and uh, predominantly, I originally predominantly worked in the South, mainly in London, uh, when I first qualified. Um, and then um, I moved to the North back in 2008, and I realised there was a massive disparity between speech and language therapy services in the South and the North, um, and um, high, high um, levels of need. Um, but the way speech language therapy was delivered at the time when I was working um, just wasn't the needs of the population. So just to kind of give you a little bit more of an idea, I was working in a clinic where we had an 86% uh, DNA rate. So DNA stands for did not attend. So mm-hmm. 86% of our clients uh, weren't able to get themselves to clinic for, for, for a lot of reasons. Um, so those, those, those children and families were not accessing speech and language therapy. Um, around the same sort of time, I um, faced a number of personal challenges and unfortunately found myself as a patient of the NHS. Um, so I was in the receiving end. Um, and I, I think I became very aware that actually how we were delivering speech, our services um, needs to change. And that kind of motivated and inspired me to set up Chatterbug um, and um, how we set up our services very much based on those experiences and uh, talking to families about how they need our speech language services to work so that it is accessible for them. Um, so we predominantly worked in uh, schools, so schools directly commission our services themselves, but we also are an NHS business provider. So we are commissioned by local authorities um, and the uh, ICD as well to provide their speech language therapy service. So that's mm-hmm. Chatterbug in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you very much. Uh, if you don't mind, you, you, your voice is not very clear. Uh, if you could just maybe move closer to the mic. But uh, the, the next question would be: um, uh, How do you how do you deal with children? And uh, you know, as a speech and language therapist yourself, uh, how do you tailor the treatment needs? 
uh, for individuals uh, with patriotic language and communication difficulties? Okay, first of all, can you, can you hear me okay now? Uh, it's slightly that, better. That, yeah, okay. Hold on, I might, I'm, let me just take my headset out. Give me, sorry, I'm just trying to play around with my headset, see if that helps. Yes, that's, that's um, much better, thank you. So, the, the most important thing in order to help us tailor a treatment um, is to start with um, uh, an assessment. Um, and actually really, really listening to what the client needs. So we work with the pediatric population, um, so, and that's children and, uh, and, and young, young adults as well, anything up to the age of 25, 28. Mm-hmm. Um, we, so that listening without any prejudices or preconceptions about what they might need based on our experience is something that we encourage all of our therapists um, to avoid, so treat every client as your first client. Um, this then enables us to identify the right assessments that we need to do, um, and we assess all the, all areas of um, communication and language. So quite often, when people think about speech and language therapists, they they think we just work on um, the talking, the, the, how people sound, but actually communication is far more complex than that. Um, there are a number of complex areas um, that kind of intertwine. So it's really important for us to understand what the what the individual's needs are and what it is that they want to um, work on and what they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, tailor our assessments, um, and by carrying out a thorough assessment, we're able to then um, develop a personalised intervention program. Um, obviously, ensuring that it's evidence-based is really really important. Um, and sometimes it, it is unique and you're using the evidence that the best evidence that's available to you um, and then throughout the intervention cycle it's important to carry out um, regular reviews and assessments to adjust the, the therapy program to ensure that it um, continues to be effective mm-hmm. and is meeting that individual's goal yeah could you give us some examples how um, some examples how you have dealt with children and uh, in response, they've maybe started speaking. You know, some something to um, uh, as an example that uh, this could work. Or if your child has uh, maybe this particular issue in in speech therapy, you could try this method. Mm, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm thinking about children who um, might just be a little bit late to develop. Is probably the easiest one. So they, um, their ability to communicate or um, like all the fundamental um, tools that they need are there and um, they just need an opportunity to grow their vocabulary um, mm-hmm. uh, so that they're able to have enough words um, to be able to construct sentences, that's quite a nice, easy one. Tend to be children who are under five, um, and the best thing to do is to have a very language-rich environment. So, um, you know, um, comment and label is a, is a really great strategy. So, keeping the language very really simple. If your child isn't talking, you just want to work, focus on single words. So, one of my favourite activities is. Um, thinking about identifying five words you might want to teach them and really focus on repeating those words 
um, within the environment, so like overly repeating them. So, for example, you might focus, try to focus on brush, mm-hmm. um, and every time you pick up the brush, you can say, look, this is a brush, or look, I'm brushing your hair, this is a brush, mummy's brushing my hair, mm. um, and really, really focusing on highlighting what that word is, but labelling in context of, with, with the actual object. That's a really common strategy um, and easy to implement in your everyday life that helps um, children to build their vocabulary. And like I said, you can identify five words that you work on and you can move on to other words. And pretty quickly, um, as long as the child doesn't have any underlying needs, um, but just needs language stimulation, that's a great way to boost their vocabulary. Amazing. And uh, I think uh, last the last one for me is that you also mentioned you... I deal with speech therapy in in much older ages, twenty uh, five mm, yeah. or so. Mm-hmm. So, what's what's the, what kind of differences do you see in the in their treatment and the treatment of younger children who um, who have this issue? Yeah, that's actually a, a great question. So, our work with the older um, uh, young people and young adults um, is. Um, a lot of the time, so I do medical legal assessments, and this is this is me personally. So this is where um, uh, an individual might find themselves um, involved in the criminal justice service because um, actually on the surface they look absolutely fine. So when you or and I, you or I see them, they're able to talk, they're able to communicate, but actually their understanding of language is what we don't see, um, and that may have got them involved in some difficult predicament so that's one area um, there is actually a really interesting study that was carried out back in 2014 um, on a youth offending service and they found that 86% of that um, population had an element of speech and language in need and actually 10% had never even been identified oh, only 10% had ever been identified sorry correct myself mm-hmm. um, uh, um, and has any had any speech and language input? There's that one element. Then, for a lot of our work for local authorities involves um, where somebody might have an educational healthcare plan. So they've had their speech and language needs have been identified, um, and they have quite significant needs. So they will continue to need access to speech and language to uh, throughout their life to help them um, um, change, modify. Um, their communication needs to access work, employment, education, mm-hmm. um, etc. Um, so, do you, do you think it's as, it is uh, easier to treat the old older children or, or older people? It's it's not necessarily it's not a matter of being easier or harder. It's it actually it's but it's quite sometimes where they've been missed for a long time. It can be harder to. Um, identify their needs because people are convinced that they don't have any speech and language needs so for example they might be uh, they might be autistic um, or what a lot of people refer to as high functioning so um, it's not necessarily been a barrier per se but for that individual it's been a significant barrier because they're continuously mm-hmm. having to adapt and adjust to an environment that isn't easy for them which can then lead to them having quite significant mental health issues Mm-hmm. Great. Um, yeah. So, so it's different. I would say it's different. Um, equally rewarding, um, but challenging in the sense that it might take a little bit more time to build that trust and relationship in yeah. some populations. Yes. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Khanum. It was a pleasure speaking to you. 
and uh, also thank you for all the in, uh, information and um, on the enlightenment you have given us. Thank you for coming on, on the show and uh, I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Thank you very much uh, there, uh, Ms. Khanum. And let me now go straight to our um, third guest for this segment, who is Rosemary Nicholson. And um, Rosemary is Director of Speech Therapy, South London. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Yes, thank you for having me on and um, raising awareness of this important issue as well. Lovely to have you. So uh, tell us about, firstly, about your motivation. What inspired you to set up uh, Speech Therapy South London? You were previously working in the NHS. Uh, yes, I was. Um, I, I set it up um, be, as a sole trader initially, um, mm -hmm. and I was doing some part-time work in school in schools alongside that. Um, but then the demand for therapy grew, um, also coupled with my desire to then adapt, be able to adapt more progressive approaches um, with more up-to-date evidence-based research as well. Um, so the private practice um, allowed me to offer this more bespoke therapy, delivering frequently frequent sessions that are typically weekly or one-to-one. -one. Um, and this isn't always possible in the NHS. Um, so that was a really big part. Um, and then the work grew. I started to hire like-minded therapists who are also very passionate um, as well um, and, and wanting to adapt new approaches, which sometimes can be quite difficult. We get very comfortable in our set way of doing things. Um, so that's great to see and be able to work alongside my colleagues who are like that as well. So, you know, I also feel like it's really important that we shift the perspective on how um, speech therapy is, you know, delivered as well. Um, and I specialize in speech delay and articulation difficulties. Um, so this is an area that I'm highly passionate about, and I really feel like it's important um, from what I've learned and continue to discover um, that speech work is delivered by professional speech and language therapists licensed. I, I know that there's a big, there's a big, a lot of TAs and other non-professionals administer and work on speech drills with children under the guidance of a speech therapist. I don't agree with that. Um, and that's not how we treat speech in my clinic. And even in my clinic, I require the therapist working in that area to demonstrate a certain level of knowledge um, in order to treat that because of, I'm really wanting that best. And I think that, that this private sector allows mm -hmm. me to do that. And all, I think another reason why I like working privately is I'm moving away from the wait and see or they'll grow out of it. I don't think that this is always helpful and I don't think this is always based on science. Um, and it's really important for me that parents feel listened to and supported. Their gut instincts about their children. Um, there's a lot of research and evidence to say that, that they are often correct. So we do need to be listening to parents. Um, and setting these, the example to work preventatively um, so children can achieve their best potential outcomes and not waiting until a child is four or five uh, to receive treatment when they've li missed out those early years of crucial development. Um, and they can begin to develop their skills much earlier than that in a more organized way following a developmental model. Ms. Nicholson, you've uh, 
touched on an interesting uh, dilemma that is debated in the media, which is between the private health service and the public health service. And it seems that you're uh, describing the independent or the private health service with the possibility of being more efficient in some ways or in certain ways. Uh, can you help our listeners with that a little bit, please? Yeah, I don't know if I want to say more efficient or help. It's that we're able to to offer this more bespoke one-on-one service. We're not, um, the NHS has a certain amount of funding that they're able to provide. And so services have to fit within that funding model, unfortunately. So whilst there are, are wonderful things about the NHS, most definitely, there are also restrictions that come with that. And um, I think in some cases, these this kind of, oh, let's wait and see, or let's see if the child grows out of it, comes from a, we don't have capacity to see these children. So a lot of, you know, there's a lot of group work in early years, and those things can be very good at times. But, you know, we, it, I'm, I, I'm, because I'm not restricted by, by that funding, I'm able to, to provide a different model, which for me works really well and for my clients works really well. Yes, that's very interesting to hear. Thank you for that. Now, with your experience as a speech therapist, uh, the field has evolved. Uh, Help us understand what role has prompt played in addressing these communication, language and speech difficulties. Yeah, I mean, there is so many ways that the role uh, that speech therapy has evolved. I think a lot more research around and a movement towards using a more motor-based theory rather than treating speech difficulties on a phonological uh, sound-based. So there's um, different ways to treat speech. And um, over the last 20 years, there's been a lot more growing evidence that we should be using a motor theory approach to treating speech sounds, um, delays, or disorders. It's much more efficient. Of course, there is a small percentage. Sorry, um, if I can just interrupt, uh, we'd love to carry on talking. Uh, Sorry, Uh, we'd love to carry on talking with you, uh, but we are coming up to the 8 o'clock news, so if you stay on the line, we'll be back after the news. Okay, thank you. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show where we're talking about speech therapy and the importance of speech therapy for children and especially the children who suffered during COVID pandemic. Before we went on to the news break, we were talking uh, to Rosemary Nicholson, who is Director of Speech Therapy South London. Are you still on the line, Miss Nicholson? Yes, I am. Excellent. Thank you very much. Sorry for that. Uh, we had to take that news break. Right. So uh, before we went on to the news break, you were telling us um, about um, various aspects of speech therapy. You were talking to us about your experience, why you set up Speech Therapy South London. If I can ask you um, about uh, myofunctional therapy, what that is and what is the significance of that? Yeah. So, um, you know, going going back, there's been more and more research as well about the importance of myofunctional speech therapy. 
and this is an area I've kind of recently become really interested in and it's led my, my experience has has led me there really um I, I and how it's led me there is um I, I could kind of go into the science of it and I, I won't but my I, I'm from my purpose this isn't scientific evidence um I'll, I'll make that clear this is my clinical opinion um based on my experience but I it appears to me that the majority of children with speech di- delays, speech difficulties, speech disorders, um, maybe up towards 95% possibly, have an associated myofunctional disorder. And when we talk about myofunctional disorders, we're talking about the mouth. And the most important function for our mouth is first, respiration, breathing, second, nutrition, our, our um, feeding as an infant sucking and swallowing, and then our speech. So when we're, and all of those things are very closely related because of the muscle movements, the structures um, that, that are required to, to make those movements happen. So when we're looking at speech, we also need to be ruling out any difficulties with, with breathing and nutrition that could cause problems because um, sometimes these can have and develop into more significant health complications, they can impact a lot of, um, they, they can look, look a lot like maybe present as sensory processing, concentration and attention, emotional regulation difficulties, difficulties with communication and interaction, managing behavioral responses and cognitive functioning. So when we're looking about these important skills for learning as well for children, um, and then the possible health span of children as well when they're mouth breathing versus nasal breathing. And these things go really close hand in hand with speech difficulties. So there's a lot more research and evidence coming out about that. And that's been a really interesting thing for me to learn about and I can bring that knowledge now into my treatment for children. Sure, absolutely. Sounds like that uh, as well. Uh, Rosemary Nicholson, thank you so very much for joining us this morning. This was uh, very, uh, very enlightening. It was uh, very informative. Really appreciate your input. And um, thank you once again. Peace be with you. Thank you very much. Peace be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a lovely uh, day. Have a lovely Monday and the week ahead. So that was Rosemary. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Rosemary Nicholson, who is Director of Speech Therapy, um, South London. Uh, let me now st- go straight to our last guest for this segment, who is Rachel Jackson, uh, who has over 25 years experience in speech and language therapy, both in the NHS and in the private sector. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Excellent. Thank you very much. So uh, let me ask, uh, let me start by asking you um, g- your memorable success story. Uh, from your 25 years' experience as a as a speech and language therapist? Yes, yes. Well, one that springs straight to mind is um, a child I used to work with very early in my career. She had um, significant speech sound difficulties with associated frustrations of not being understood. Even her parents couldn't understand her, which is um, sort of a sign of how significant her need is. She used gesture and her own sign language to communicate. Um, she was only little, but we worked through a program specifically targeted on increasing the coordination of her mouth movements and helping her produce different consonant and vowel sounds in sequence. 
she and her family worked really hard to complete the programme and by the end of the therapy the difference was phenomenal. She had all her speech sounds, her frustration had reduced, she could be understood clearly by unfamiliar adults as well as her parents and I was really proud of the difference that I'd enabled in her. So being on the panel of a podcast focused on raising awareness of fatal alcohol spectrum disorder, FASD, how do you think speech and language therapists can contribute to broader awareness and understanding of these issues? I think the main thing is raising awareness and raising the profile of FASD. Um, it affects as many as 1 in 13 children born in the UK. But drinking in pregnancy is such a taboo subject over here that mums are made to feel ashamed about it, so often don't admit it. But if a therapist knows what to look out for and how FASD presents and raise awareness about it and can speak sensitively to parents and ask questions about drinking in pregnancy in a non-judgmental way, they might be able to supply the missing piece to why their child's presenting how they are. So many mums don't know they're pregnant until several weeks into the pregnancy they don't intentionally drink whilst they're pregnant, but they only stop drinking once their pregnancy is confirmed. And that happens to so many people that the stigma needs to be removed by all health workers, not just speech and language therapists, um, so that mums can speak openly about it and the children can get the help that they need. It's interesting that as the scientific understanding develops, we continue to learn about the complications or health challenges that are caused by alcohol consumption. Uh, for our listeners' understanding, why the expression fatal associated with this disorder? It's fetal. fetal. Oh, it's fetal. F-E-A-T-A-L. I'm fetal sorry, in, it's spelled in wrong. Yes. Okay, <laughs> I'm, my apologies. And okay. with your extensive background in supporting children's communication abilities, how have you seen technology play a role in enhancing speech therapy and... What potential benefits do you think we can foresee in the development of technology into this? This is a really interesting question. In my early years as a speech and language therapy, technology was generally shunned because it was a thief of opportunities to interact socially and emotionally. But it's such a large part of our lives now, not least because of COVID-19. And there needs to be an acceptance of this change. And generally, there has been an acceptance. I think it's definitely got its place and video therapy is becoming more utilised across the field as well as in very many areas of life in general. But I think it needs to be the right prescription for the right cohort of clients. If the therapists and carers are accepting and the child's accepting of video techniques and technology, then the therapy is more likely to be successful. Um, but as far as communication is concerned, from my personal point of view, No matter how much technology is being used by everyone, there's no substitute for face-to-face communication to learn and practice spoken languages and the nuances of communication and conversational skills. Um, So depending on whether the therapy prescribed is training for adults around the child, video demonstrations of techniques to use with the child or face-to-face group intervention, I personally don't feel there should be a one-size-fits-all, but it definitely has its place. Mm. And the next exciting step is that they're starting to be research into the use of um, artificial intelligence. 
I'm not au fait with exactly how it will work, but with the right support from professionals and the correct credibility and ratification, I'm really excited to see where it might go. Mm. And do you think with the artificial intelligence, some kind of diagnostic assessments could be refined? If not diagnostic assessments, then routine therapy that is quite prescriptive and follows a certain pattern. It will always need a speech and language therapist overseeing it and doing those diagnostics. I don't think that with with children specifically, um, I work with children, um, I don't think you can replace an actual person observing a child and making those judgments. Um, some of them are quite subtle. Um, so I think artificial intelligence will be more involved in delivering the therapy rather than the diagnosis. Okay, and lastly, um, from your personal experience, I, I understand that you have a neurologically diverse child, and if that has affected your approach as a speech and language therapist? Another good question, yes. It's given me a really clear insight into how to work with all children with an additional need, including speech and language difficulties. Only when I experienced it as a mum did I truly understand how important it is to take into consideration how far along the journey the family are in recognising, accepting and understanding their child's condition. And then it's ramifications before effective therapy can take place. I was in denial for years. And so any suggestions of additional help or therapy, although I was always happy to seek it out, fell on not deaf, but definitely muffled ears. And it was only, I've got two children and they were both diagnosed with ADD, attention deficit disorder. And the paediatrician started talking about prescribed medicine. And that's when I fully started to accept the complexities that they brought to our family and what I'd fully been dealing with. Um, and if you don't join a family where they are and you try to lead them to an end goal before they're ready, then it's just a, a fruitless exercise, really. Um, you need to find the family where they are, join them, whether they're in denial or acceptance, educate them, help them and, and listen to what help they need. And then as the picture unfolds and they become aware more closely of what their child needs and how it's going to affect their lives, you can signpost them to help, give them the right support, and then the child will start developing and flourishing. Very interesting um, and uh, touching from your personal experience perspective too. Miss Rachel Jackson, thank you very much for joining us at The Breakfast Show on The Voice of Islam Radio. It's been very good to talk to you, and thank you very much for the, all the information you've provided. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Right. So um, that brings us to um, to the final segment um, uh, for the first topic, which is about the uh, the Islamic perspective. So, what uh, Imam Usman does Islam say about uh, people who may have special needs? Um, <clears throat> yes. Thank you. Um, uh, I mean, if you if you go in, into um, specifically speech therapy, there isn't um, not very anything specific, you know, to to fix the problem. Obviously, Islam goes hand in hand with science, and uh, in in this regard, Islam says that use the uh, things, use the technology around you, and use it for the benefit of human uh, advancement. 
Um, but uh, there is a example of speech um, um, therapy, or you can say some uh, speech-related uh, issue uh, in the Holy Quran, which takes us all the way back to the time of Prophet Moses, peace be upon him. That when he went to uh, um, when when he went to challenge the Pharaoh, um, the Pharaoh did kind of mock him. Uh, it is also mentioned in the Holy Quran that um, you, I mean you you don't even speak properly until recently, and then uh, you want uh, you want to address me, who is the king? You know he was showing the arrogance of the Pharaoh. And in in this regard, there is a prayer of uh, Prophet Moses, peace be upon him, in the Holy Quran. Uh, which is that Rabbi Sadri wa amri lisani qawli, that uh, he prayed to God Almighty when he was sent to this mission to free the um for the to, to, to free the Jews uh, that oh my Lord expand my chest for me um and make the, my task easy for me and untie the knot of my tongue so that I can uh, speak clearly and that the people may understand me clearly. Now obviously this has many meanings but one a uh, uh, thing that came to my mind, I mean, because we're talking about speech therapy, uh, is this. Uh, the second thing about, uh, um, which I uh, generally um, speaking about uh, any any kind of disability or deficiency in children, in that regard, uh, the, the there's a saying of the Holy Prophet, uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, and he said that cultivate the best of manners in, in your children uh, and, and teach them to respect um, so uh, if you take this general guideline, what we can obviously do is try our best to um, make sure that our children learn or the best of manners. Um, sp- should speak with them respectfully so they also, you know, because children imitate, that they uh, copy that respect and then give that respect. And, um, and there is also a, a personal story, actually. Um, just recently, one of my nephews, um, he also has a speech delay and... Um, uh, he he went to meet his holiness, and uh, his holiness has Mizar Masur Ahmed, the fifth head of the Hindi Muslim community. He looked at him. He said that oh, don't worry, he doesn't have any problems. Just speak to him uh, eye to eye. Make sure you have eye contact and speak to him for half an hour. So um, uh, th- half an hour every day. Yeah, yeah, half an hour every day. So this is the uh, I mean uh, also like a, a very interesting insight of his holiness that. Mm. Uh, um, very specific, you know, look at him, the eye contact, you have to look at him because when you call him, uh, my nephew, when you call him, he doesn't listen, he doesn't react, hmm. he doesn't understand. So, um, eye contact is, yeah, so he's always understood that you have to look at him, speak to him for half, and that's, uh, that's quite a difficult um, task as well. But yeah, so the this, this, the Islamic side is this that um, you cultivate the best of manners in your children and uh, pray for the, for the best. Excellent. Thank you very, very much uh, for that, uh, Imam Usman Manan. Uh, and with that, we conclude this first segment uh, around uh, uh, speech issues uh, with uh, with children therapy. And we've had a very holistic uh, discussion. We've had four experts talking to us about what needs to be done, what um, what can be done, what's available out there. Uh, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, you can always go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. Let me now go into the um, straight into the second segment, which is about the Israel-Gaza war and how divided a world uh, that has created. So two months after Hamas attacked southern Israel on October 7th, death and destruction have devastated the region between um, uh, uh, Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Hamas fighters are understood to have killed 1,200 Israelis um, and took uh, about 240 hostages. 
Israel has responded with deadly bombardment and artillery um, assaults, including on-the-ground offensive in Gaza, killing more than 18,000 people, 7,000 or more uh, of them being children. Let me now go straight to uh, our first guest for this segment, who is Dr. Afzal Ashraf, uh, who has a broad experience of international relations and security issues, both as a practitioner as um, and as an academic. This includes uh, service as a senior officer in the UK Armed Forces in operations ranging from famine relief in Africa to stabilization operations in South Atlantic. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome, Dr. Ashraf, to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ash, for joining us. I know you're traveling, so really appreciate uh, you joining us today. Let me start by asking you, um, what do you think Israel's reaction had been had some of these um, Hamas fighters um, been inside Israeli territory? How do you think they would have responded to um uh, to the situation then? Well, I think that they would obviously have been a lot more discriminatory in who they uh, attempted to uh, kill. Uh, presumably that uh, your question suggests that they're in territory and they will presumably resist arrest. Um, then, yes, I think a great deal more discrimination uh, and proportionality in the use of force would have taken place. Um, I don't think there's much doubt about that, although um, uh, the recent events have shown that uh, certainly in the, in the case of the hostages, uh, some of those hostages that had managed to escape, um, who were killed without um, uh, much distinction. I know the matter is under investigation, so um, but the, the, the initial report suggests that these people made every effort to um, to be seen not as fighters by taking their shirts off and uh, clearly no fighter would be out there without a shirt on but uh, not wearing a shirt uh, showed that they weren't carrying any um, hidden weapons or uh, bomb making uh, or, or bomb devices uh, they also used a white sh uh, a cloth to signify mm -hmm. surrender and then finally um, they even uh, shouted out in Hebrew and and According to the report, um, there was the, the remaining um, uh, uh, injured man was subsequently shot. Now, of course, these are uh, reports that um, need to be verified and an investigation taking place. So, but there does appear that um, there is a, a higher degree of callous uh, behaviour um, exhibited by the current uh, politicians um, than has been the case in the past. Uh, so it's a, it's a very hypothetical and speculative question you ask, but I think the, uh, the answer is as I've given to you. Sure. Again, let me uh, be slightly more specific um, in my second question. So that would be, you know, according to some of the data that has come out, and, and Americans have, uh, have shared uh, this data as well, 29,000 pounds um, of bombs have actually been dropped uh, on this small piece of land um, uh, in Gaza, uh, this, uh, this area known as Gaza Strip in the last two months, uh, about 45% of which are called non-smart bombs or dumb bombs. What does that indicate? Well, that indicates a huge amount of destructive ca capacity um, 
uh, and even uh, the smart bombs, so to speak, have been used um, against targets, most of which, the vast majority of which, appear to have been um, uh, targets uh, involving um, civilians and uh, children, mainly in women. So I think some estimates suggest that 70% of the death toll is women and children, um, who are obviously non-combatants. And even of the, the male uh, element of that death toll, uh, it's, it's obvious that uh, the vast majority of them are not um, anything to do with Hamas. Um, if Hamas had been targeted uh, with anywhere near the sort of effectiveness that the civilians have, then we would have noticed a significant drop-off in the Hamas activities. And um, certainly the last time I checked, they were still managing to um, uh, somewhat stupidly uh, fire these rockets into Israel, none of which seemed to do anything um, of any significance, which sort of calls into question why they're doing it, but they are doing it. And um, uh, they appear to be um, uh, uh, killing uh, soldiers uh, on a reasonably worrying scale. I think there was a report just a couple of days ago that uh, one of their elite that, um, units of 40 men were wiped out by Hamas. So they haven't really um, uh, issued a significant blow to Hamas, whereas the, the death toll is significant. I think the last figure I heard was in excess of 19,000 dead, but in excess of 8,000 appeared to be buried under the rubble, uh, most of whom almost certainly would have died by now, and if they haven't, they'll, they'll be dying very painfully, suffocating underneath um, the concrete and so on. And so we're talking really in real terms of um, you know something in excess of 25,000 people killed by those, that um, uh, ordinance that you've spoken about, over 50, probably more like 60 by now, thousand people who are seriously, or many of whom sadly will succumb to those injuries and die because there is virtually no even basic uh, uh, medical facilities, particularly things like antiseptics uh, uh, that, that would prevent follow-on infections. You know, even a small scratch, if it's not properly treated, can become infected and can lead, lead to a fatal um, injury in the longer term. So um, it is, uh, by every, any stretch of the imagination, a, a totally disproportionate uh, and um, uh, an un, if you like, a, a non-discriminatory uh, act, which appears to be, um, uh, if not by intent, certainly uh, by um, uh, in, implication, targeting the civilian population. And that is the main reason, I think, um, that uh, virtually every country, with the exception of the United States and uh, the UK, um, in the world has voted for an immediate stop to this um, uh, assault, to an immediate ceasefire is what people want, because there is no uh, alternative, because every minute, every hour, um, people are needlessly dying. And I say needlessly. Um, because even if we um, forget the moral, the ethical, and the legal um, issues that are hugely problematic in this, um, if uh, Israel is serious, uh, the Israeli government at the moment is serious about um, putting an end to Hamas, um, as I've already said, they haven't achieved their objective, and there's no precedence for them achieving uh, any such objective. 
if you look at modern warfare from uh, as far back as the Vietnam War to the current day, um, the, the United States, uh, with the most awesome military might in the history of mankind, has failed uh, to achieve success in almost every single war. Um, and the few wars it might have achieved success in, perhaps Kosovo, um, are, uh, are wars which are distinctive in that they involve the minimal amount of civilian casualties. And it's almost a, uh, an, an empirical law. The more civilian casualties they inflict, the, 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 the greater the defeat um, militarily they have suffered. So in the modern world, this form of warfare um, is ineffective. Uh, and, and I think that's the point that uh, I've tried to make to um, uh, various politicians, um, that, um, you know, if you can't be bothered with the moral or the legal argument, then at least look at the effectiveness argument. You're not achieving your end. Unless, of course, sadly, the ends in this case are not really to defeat Hamas, but to actually um, uh, wipe out a large section of the uh, Palestinian population and to drive out the remaining section of the Palestinian op uh, population, in which case, of course, uh, they have achieved uh, a reasonable degree of success. Although, again, I doubt they'll achieve their aims in the longer term. Um, it, it does appear that some politicians um, mm. in the UK uh, certainly seem to have been listening to, uh, to the argument that you've uh, th that you've just made and the mood music just um, seems to be now shifting here in the UK UK and Germany um, you know the foreign ministers came out with an article over the weekend as well uh, promoting a ceasefire uh, and and the public opinion globally also seems to be um, I think shifting towards um, uh, uh, towards Palestine and, 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 and Palestinians I should say um, how long do you think Americans can afford to go against this rising sentiment that Palestinians are actually being massacred in this um, uh, in this war. Well, I think you, you make a very interesting point uh, that um, public opinion seems to be shifting. I think one of the um, uh, many unusual things about this particular round of attacks on. Uh, the, the the Palestinian population, and of course we mustn't forget that uh, although the horrendous events of the 7th of October uh, have precipitated probably the severest reaction um, by Israel, it, it's not the the, the only one. Uh, ever since the 1980s, um, both uh, the uh, Gaza Strip, the um, uh, even Lebanon and uh, other parts of uh, occupied territories have been um, uh, periodically subjected to um, significant bombing campaigns, invasions and the like. Uh, all of them have been um, considered to be excessive uh, by elements of the international community and there have been calls for ceasefires and the like. But um, what has happened from the outset um, has been uh, a, a very strong global uh, outpouring of um, condemnation initially, of course, and quite rightly against the uh, activities as they've been reported of uh, Hamas and other terrorist groups who 
um, have been um, described as committing some horrendous uh, atrocities and, and, and certainly taking um, uh, innocent uh, Israelis as captives, all of which is wrong and, 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 and was rightly and should continue to be condemned. Um, but subsequently, we have seen as soon as Israel took its um, actions, and, and, and even in the first few days, um, the way it has committed its assault has been horrendous. And there are some very interesting things that I see as being different in this uh, that have led to the situation you describe of uh, a, um, a public opinion backlash. And one of them uh, has been the uh, a remarkable failure of Israel and its um, uh, supporters, uh, United States primarily, uh, to uh, maintain what we call narrative dominance. And narrative dominance is um, making sure that your side of the story, right or wrong, remains on top. And it is something that needs considerable thought because there is no obvious uh, explanation for this. But um, uh, what their attempts at uh, propaganda, be it the allegations of um, beheadings of babies, various other things, almost each one of them has been um, uh, undone, and undone not by any external factors of any significance, but by, if you like, their own failures to to do this properly, if I might use that term. Um, even uh, the 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 um, constant uh, um, line, a consistent line that um, Israel has taken that we are the most moral and restrained army in the world, uh, which of course many people haven't been buying into. Even that has been undone by the recent incident that I talked about with the way that uh, they sadly and tragically these um, three uh, Israeli hostages were killed by the IDF. And there are many other instances I could go into. So I think that uh, it is worth, before uh, trying to address the question you posed, it's definitely worth pondering deeply about how uh, these plans, these narrative dominance plans have been undone um, and, and undone in a way that there is no obvious, and I don't think there is any um, uh, hidden either, um, uh, hand uh, which uh, from any of the other powers or any other movement, um, it has been uh, a, a constant failure of narrative dominance, which they have managed to do very well in previous um, uh, occasions. And so, uh, yes, you, you're right. Um, the, I think the feeling always has been in the United States that there is a, um, it's okay. And I, I mean, of course, these, uh, the United States doesn't actually say this, but uh, its policy seems to clearly indicate this, to me anyway, that uh, it's okay to kill, uh, you know, a small number of people, but there comes a point at which you must stop. Uh, and that's why I think the United States and the UK government's line has always been that you 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 have a right to to your security, but it must be within international law. And of course, international law can be manipulated depending on the public you're talking to. Um, and and there has been this acceptance. Well, yes, collateral damage is damage is an acceptable way of achieving your military aids. And the Israelis have 
been very, very good at manipulating that. And even in this conflict and every single conflict before, uh, Shimon Peres uh, and indeed uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in previous conflicts have, have invoked the Second World War uh, in cases such as um, Dresden, which is a well-known uh, case of um, civilian uh, being targeted on a massive scale with 20,000 people being killed and burnt and shot even um, you know, in one day, um, uh, to um, other incidents that are lesser well-known of um, uh, how the RAF uh, bombed accidentally, I might add, um, a convent in Denmark in an attempt to um, attack a Gestapo headquarters, which went horribly wrong, tragically wrong. Um, anyhow, so that has been a, a constant uh, um, way of uh, trying to, if you like, excuse uh, the, the high numbers of collateral damage. And, uh, and and so I think the United States and the UK have had this sort of um, tacit agreement that you can kill a certain number, but you can't go too far. But in this particular case, um, the government they have in place is the most right-wing government, which uh, members of which have made no secret of their intention to um, regard uh, even... Um, uh, Palestinian children as being vicariously guilty of um, uh, all sorts of crimes. And so when you have this situation, you do have a, um, a problem uh, that um, uh, and I'm sure the, the, the American government is very concerned, uh, the British government too, not necessarily uh, because of the lives, uh, that they have any real concern of the lives of the Palestinian people, but they are concerned about their political capital and their reputation. And so as time goes on, um, we see uh, a change. We've already seen a very subtle change in the statements in the last 24 hours or so that, um, that even um, uh, our foreign secretary has made. Um, and I think for a combination of the two reasons, one is public opinion, but much more importantly, um, political uh, reputation, because, of course, elections in many cases are only months away. Um, people don't want to be mired in, in, in negative publicity at this stage, especially as they can have seen that in the streets of London in Washington and many other places, there is huge opposition to this. So I, I think you will see a, a turning point. But the point thing I think we need to think about is why th that has come about and why um, the narrative dominant strategy that has been so successful in the past in this particular case appears to be failing massively, um, but within uh, the Israeli and uh, its coalition structures without any real significant external attempt to undermine it. It is their own failures that are causing them the problem. And I think for most of your listeners, um, there is a great deal to ponder, a great deal to reflect on this. Dr. Afzal Ashraf, uh, thank you very much once again for joining us. Unfortunately, um, that's all we've got time for. Um, I must thank you also for joining um, uh, us live while you're traveling. So really appreciate your input today. As always, uh, lovely to have you on the show. Okay, salam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, peace and blessings of Allah be with you. So that was Dr. Afzal Ashraf, 
who um, has been a former senior officer in uh, the UK Armed Forces, talking to us about the conflict. Let me uh, go now straight to our second guest, who is Ido Setter. Ido is uh, a playwright based in Israel who writes about political and social issues. Ido joined Standing Together about two years ago. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome. Ido, are you there? I think we probably have lost Ido and we'll try and reconnect with Ido in a minute. Um, right, uh, uh, Dr. Shakil, some very interesting uh, um, things highlighted by uh, Dr. Ashraf there. Uh, you know, this, especially this, uh, uh, this concept of manufacturing consent and this narrative building and um, and ensuring that your narrative stays on top. Yes, unfortunately, I, I, do you think it's the social media that has that has changed the dynamics this time around? Because it wasn't like that in the 90s. Um, I, I think you are right that it is um, an important part of the um, public opinion manipulation uh, as part of the war strategy that is used. Uh, however, I think it is important to understand that if you're using manipulation of the public opinion to a, in a manner or in the direction that you expect them to support you whilst you carry some breaking of the international law or humanitarian law, then you are in fact going in, you're breaching justice, you're breaching fairness. Even if there is a serious political conflict, what you're orchestrating is to demolish justice in how you handle it. And it is the law of nature that every time justice is breached, howsoever you may want to achieve it by manipulation of public opinion to support your elections or whatever, or your armament industry, but it's going to, in fact, lead to negative consequences rather than positive consequences for the world peace and for bringing human race and different nations together. Absolutely. Now, that is important for us to recognize, and I think that's what I get from it. 100%, absolutely. Uh, let's now uh, see if Doc, if Ido Setter is back on the line. Ido, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Ido. Thank you very, very much uh, for joining us. Uh, apologies for that uh, technical glitch earlier. Um, can I start by asking you, uh, how may, uh, why do you think people assume that Israeli-Gaza conflict is actually a religious? Well, I think, first of all, it has some uh, religious aspects to it. Um, but I think that the main reason is that people uh, want us to assume that this conflict cannot be solved. And by depicting the conflict as a religious conflict, it basically they ba they basically say there is no solution for this conflict. Okay, it's been going on for years and years because it is uh, because it, it's a religious conflict, and we can never solve it. Okay, we can only try to manage it. And I think, of course, this is wrong. I think the the, the conflict is does have some uh, uh, religious aspects to it, as some other uh, aspects as well. But I think that it is basically not a religious conflict. And most importantly, it can be and should be and must be solved. Um, um, and the, the, the solution is, uh, is, is complicated. It is a very complicated conflict. It's a very uh, long and uh, bloody conflict. But uh, it can be solved. And I think that what we are uh, 
experiencing now in Israel-Palestine is the utter necessity uh, to move towards a solution because we, we're seeing that if we are not moving in the direction of the solution, we're moving in the direction of, of what's going on now, of, 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 of terror and, 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 um, and, and, and killing and destruction. Thank you for your answer, Mr. Setter. In fact, we are aware of uh, uh, small pockets of people of different religious backgrounds within Israel coming together to try to raise the voice of peace so that it is not uh, so that it's not purely seen as a religious conflict and like you've emphasized that there is also a political dimension to it in your opinion from your experience how are these divisions amongst the people of Israel developing uh, in relation to what they're seeing um well i think that the the main thing that we are uh, we are doing in, in in standing together is to talk about our common interests okay and 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 the thing is that the i think the the, the right wing paradigm is to divide is to divide and say okay you belong to i'm i'm a secular israeli so i belong to this community and someone else is um, is a religious muslim so so she belongs to that community and 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 we and just because we we, we are part of, of different communities, so we mean, that means that we clash with each other and we are against each other. And we are basically uh, saying that this, is, this has to be changed. It, it, it's, not, it's not the right way to, to, to talk about it or the right way to perceive it. We, we, we advocate that the right way to, to talk about the conflict and, and also about, about other aspects uh, of life in, uh, in Israel-Palestine is through the, the, the glasses of the, of the... Mr. Setter, we've lost you. Can you hear me? I think we've lost him again, yeah. But I think he was, uh, he was raising a very important point there that uh, it's, it's really a solution. We've got to find a solution and we've, uh, and we've got to... Uh, there is no other way, really. Uh, and uh, as you pointed out uh, as well, there are voices of peace in, in Israel people and organizations like that, which is very, very heartening. Yes, absolutely. And I think Mr. Setter also touched on this point, that it's about people coming together mm. and recognizing that even though there may be a difference of opinion, whether it's on a political basis or a religious basis, mm. but uh, to begin with, they are also human beings, they are communities. And there are also examples in world history where communities of different religions or political aspects have lived together and interacted successfully and lived in harmony. And I think that um, having such voices in a period like this, where on one hand we see atrocities and the harsh-handedness approach, it is, it is life-giving to have such um, alternative uh, opinions like we were hearing just now. Absolutely, 100%. And we will try and um, get uh, Mr. Setter back. Uh, and as, uh, as soon as we do, we will take you back live um, uh, to him. Um, in terms of the um, the possible solutions, so um, there there have been quite a few solutions which uh, which have been talked about. There is obviously the the two the two state solution. Um, I've been told Ido Setter is back on the line. Hi, Ido, can you hear Hi. me? 
Excellent. Sorry. Yes, we, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. You, you, uh, we lost you there. So, yeah. yeah sorry um, about that. Uh, no, no. Um, I, there must be something um, uh, in the middle. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So, if if I can move the conversation on, and you mentioned that, you know, we've got to find a solution uh, to this issue. Do you think, do you see the will to find a solution in the current Israeli administration? Well, um, with I, I think that that I think that the question is not the, the administration. I think that the question is the Israeli-Palestinian public. And I think that we need, I mean, especially after October 7th, but even before that, we need to realize that we must find a solution, that not finding a solution is not an option. Okay, this, this thing, this um, situation, the occupation, the domination of uh, more than two million people um, is not something that is manageable, is not something that, that, that is viable, it's something that, that needs, that has to be solved. And it is true that the current uh, Israeli administration is very uh, right-wing one. The, the Israeli government is the most uh, far right-wing that, that, that can be imagined. But I think that the Israeli-Palestinian public within Israel uh, is not uh, as right-wing, or, or, or there, are some, there are very different uh, voices and very different political uh, um, standpoints for the public. And we advocate change as best we change through the public, not through the politicians. Through the public that that is based, as I mentioned earlier before we were uh, disconnected, uh, a, a change that is based on common interests, on common goals and common needs. So I think that if we look on the Israeli government, it's uh, it's a very problematic uh, government. But if we look at the Israeli-Palestinian public we can um it can give us a lot of hope it can give us a lot of hope when we see the things that are being done even after october 7th in this really horrible more than 70 years uh, 70 uh, days of uh, of war in gaza um but the the public uh, the, the the public actions and the public initiatives can bring us uh, a lot of hope and we hope uh, to to take this uh, to take this further into a real uh, political change, and again because because we have to realize that we we must do it, we must do it for ourselves, uh, for our neighbors, for our families, for our children. We don't have the luxury of of keep uh, hiding for a minute and say okay it will work itself out. It won't. We mm. must to work. To work Certainly, Mr. Seta, so, you speak of change. So tell us a bit about your theory of change. How are you going to implement that? Well, so the, our theory of change is is based on uh, on on the public, on the public, on on creating change from the public, from uh, bottom up, and uh, and and starting on uh, on talking about the common interest to try to 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 challenge the usual uh, divisions of Israeli-Palestinian society and, 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 and to create um, great communities that are based 
on common interests and common goals. And we do it on the, on the local levels in, in cities and towns and uh, as well Palestinians uh, um, uh, towns and, and mixed uh, cities and, and Jewish uh, cities. And also we have a very um, dynamic uh, student chapters uh, in more than uh, in 14 universities hundreds of people are part of uh, standing together as uh, uh, student chapters and we see that 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 it works i mean we have uh, 5000 members uh, standing together and we have tens tens of thousands of people uh, every week um, advocating uh, for this change and adv- advocating for solidarity for solidarity mm-hmm. for equality for peace thank you mr sata is uh um, really, really very important words you're speaking and uh, we see that from the work you're doing that, I mean, uh, humanity is is, is is ultimately good. Uh, there are evil people in the world, but humanity will always um, go towards which is just, which is good. And wish you all the best for all your efforts and uh, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Lovely to have Thank you, you Mr. Sada. Thank you. Bye bye. Um, let me now go straight to our last guest, who is uh, Ms. Mai Shahin, who is a community manager at Combatants for Peace. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the breakfast show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting uh, and bringing our voice to your platform. We deeply appreciate it. And uh, we uh, lovely to have you. Absolutely, the the pleasure is certainly mutual. Um, do you think enough is being done to try and solve this conflict? Uh, I think that now there is much more um, awareness uh, happening uh, in the international community of the atrocities and the 75 years of occupation and uh, oppression uh, that the Palestinians have been enduring and also awareness to what it's reflecting now on both communities, such as what happened on the 7th of October, uh, which as an organization, uh, of course, we condemn uh, both uh, violation of humanity, uh, the violation of the right of civilians uh, to live free uh, in this land. And yes, the international community has uh, such a huge, big responsibility when it comes to the Israeli and Palestinian uh, struggle, uh, we see that what is happening now, uh, so many advocates for ceasefire since the beginning of the war. We see many advocating uh, for sustainable political uh, solutions. We see people saying there is no army solution within within the within the Palestinian uh, territories, and yet the war is still going. As now, as we are speaking, they are bombing hospitals and the numbers of uh, people being killed in Gaza is uprising. So the question whether the international community is doing enough, salutation to everything they are doing, but we need to hold our leaders accountable uh, where they take uh, equal human Mm -hmm. decisions that will be performed not only as a, for a few days, but also to sustain these decisions for equality of a freedom and movement to both people in this land. Um, 
a previous guest, Ida, uh, Mr. Ida Setter, was talking about public opinion within Israel. Um, do you think the public there is enough shift within the Israeli public to support a, a ceasefire as well? And I ask this uh, especially in view of a recent survey. It was done about a week ago, and I think things have changed in the last week or so. Uh, things are changing very, very quickly. But about a week until about a week ago, the survey suggested that only 1.5% of Israelis, um, mm. Israeli Jews, actually mm. supported um, uh, a, a ceasefire. And 1.5% um, of them actually said that the bombing in Gaza is indiscriminate and, uh, and too much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think there is well, a shift? Of course, we see, uh, we see there is the narrative that is not being uh, mentioned uh, throughout uh, this country and the international also media. Uh, what happened on the 7th of October, we acknowledge that it uh, awakened a trauma within the Israeli community that uh, came from the Holocaust. We understand that the Jewish who are in this land are sus- survivors survivals of such atrocities that happened to them. And we see that it is, yes, it's a trauma-reflected reaction. We also see that their own government, and before the 7th of October, there was a lot of uh, protests uh, within the Israeli community calling uh, the Israeli uh, government as a fascist government. Now there are there is fear because it is uh, as peace activists within the combatants. Uh, you can also read on our uh, media. A lot of our combatants are out in the streets, but it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous even for us peace activists to say there is the possibility of living together in one land. Uh, we see that uh, a lot of violence is being performed from the Israeli uh, police on their own citizens. We also hear the government asking uh, the hostages' families not to speak, not to demonstrate. Uh, so, yeah, there is a lot of uh, reasons to why there is not yet people coming out. But I will tell you, in the past um, 10 days, we ha- actually have been witnessing more and more protesters going out, calling for ceasefire and asking for a political, a sustainable uh, change and asking the international community to take accountability. And this is where the international responsibility comes also in encouraging these voices and saying, yes, we advocate for you and with you in togetherness, both Palestinians and Israelis, for joint peace and not the normal peace where somebody, one side is dancing and the other side is suffering. No, it's for equal rights for both people to live as humans with the human equality of a freedom. 100%. So, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. F- cannot agree more. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ms. Maya Shahin, for joining us um, all the way from Israel. You are a community manager at Competence for Peace. Really appreciate yes. uh, your joining us today mm-hmm. and your input to the show today. Have a lovely day and week ahead and all the best with all the great work uh, that you're doing. Um, we've got only about uh, a couple of minutes uh, to go. Dr. Shaquille, your sort of 30-second summary uh, or your take or your thoughts on, on the discussion so far? Well, 
I just remembered an incident that was uh, narrated by His Holiness Hazrat Mizza Masroor Ahmed, the current Khalifa of the Ahmadi Muslim community. And he, as you know, he's talking about the, um, the the life of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and when he had migrated from Mecca to Medina, and the Meccans had brought their armies on to attack the Muslims in Medina as well. And in one of those battles, one of the soldiers who was um, fighting to defend the Medina and the Muslims and other religious groups in Medina, and and he fought bravely, he went through the enemy lines, and he reached the back of their army, breaking their lines, and found that there were women there. Mm. And he was in his momentum, and he was carrying on uh, fighting and killing people who were attacking him and all right. those things. But he immediately stopped. Yeah. And even though the, the women called the other soldiers of their side to attack him, he did not attack the women. Right. And he came back remembering that the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, had oh, said, sorry. no non-combatants must be attacked. Ethics of war according to the Islamic teaching. 100%. Thank you very, very much uh, for that. Right. So that uh, concludes our show for this morning. Um, We've been talking about the Israeli-Gaza conflict. There will be a show uh, next uh, uh, tomorrow morning. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa